0: grab a seat, grab a seat. Most of you already are, which means maybe a kind of a weak greeting time tonight. It's all right. Uh, good to have you all here. I got to meet some new friends uh, even just a second ago, so thank you all for joining us. Uh, as Brandon said, especially if it's your first time, it is an honor. Now, if uh, you and I, especially those who are here for the first time, if we were playing a little game, a little, uh, you know, like get to know you game, one of the questions that might be asked is, uh, so tell us, uh, tell us a fun fact about yourself. And... So, I know a lot of you don't know this about me, um, but uh, I happen to be uh, the lead singer of uh, an entire album that was put out in the early 2000s. This is the album cover. Uh, our our band's name was Blitz. Um, as you know, I was a football player, and so the, the name felt uh, appropriate. Actually, uh, we, were, we were a worship band. We turned the music up loud enough so that uh, my voice could not be heard over it. And uh, traveled uh, and did several cams for a couple years. We put out a six. Uh, yes, yeah, so there's the zoom in. There's me, of course, looking away from the camera because this is like what bands do, right? I'm wearing a black leather jacket there. Okay, I think I look decently the same. Um, so, <laughs> man, we, we had a blast, honestly. Like, I cannot sing for anything, but it was a fun uh, couple-year run. And <laughs> what happened is when you're, when you're recording an album like one of, the, one of the big things that you want to try to figure out is like how are we going to uh, do a hidden track, okay? Because like hidden tracks to a first time recording artist, which I use that word very loosely, uh, it, like that, that's kind of the, the cool piece, right? And so uh, I'm ashamed to admit this, but we decided to, uh, to do a, a hidden track on our album that was a song that we used to sing every night together as a band right before we went to bed. And... And we traveled a lot, and so we were staying in camps and staying in different places when we would go out and, and play and, and lead worship, and uh, it was called the Sleepy the Sleepy Time Song. And again, I'm very ashamed to admit it, but if, if you have our album, and I've destroyed all of them but this one, okay, so uh, there's no getting it, but if you were to uh, let, the, let track six play out a little bit, a couple minutes, there you would find the Sleepy Time Song. Now, I'm certainly not going to sing it for you, but uh, I was remembering it again because of how cozy I felt every single time I sang the song. There was something about singing sleepy time, sleep... Like, and, and you know we like had like negative three-part harmony on it, right? Because all of us couldn't sing. There was just something soothing about it. And, and, and this is true about our bedtime habits. Uh, there are certain things that we do that are very soothing. So... I want to kind of put us in a couple categories here in terms of our bedtime uh, sleeping habits so that we can get to know one another a little bit better. So how many of you in here, by raise of hand, sleep and prefer sleeping with no noise? So no box fan, no noise at all, like you like the absolute silence. How many of you? Okay, I figured you were the minority. Okay, so how do you do in like hotels and stuff when people are like, you know, like opening and closing doors, is it a struggle? Not well, okay. Well, why is it that you don't have... No, like, how many of you guys use box fans then on the other side? Okay, Okay. many of us. I have a box fan that sits about a foot from my face, um, which my doctor says is not good for anything, but it feels awesome, okay. I know, yeah, there you go, there you go. Some of you guys fall... How many of you guys fall asleep uh, watching TV? Some of you guys do that as well. Horrible habit, okay. We'll pray for you, Brian. Now... Um, the the other thing I want to know, and this is in all vulnerability, I know that some of you won't know this because you're yet to be married, uh, or sleep in the same bed as someone, but how many of you guys are willing to admit that you snore, okay? Willing to admit by raise of hand, there they are, ladies and gentlemen. And listen, I don't, I don't know why people hate on snore so much, right? It's not like anyone dreams when they're a kid of being a snore, you know, it's it's not on the top ten list, right? Like, one day I hope I snore and wake up my spouse all the time. Like, no one dreams of this, okay? So I actually, to all of those of you who raise your hand, I have sympathy for you, right? Like, it's nothing you can help, okay? Uh, I too, when I'm super, super tired, uh, snore as well. But listen, we have a lot of strange, crazy uh, bedtime habits. And uh, the last thing that I want to pull out is what I've learned about myself is I can fall asleep anywhere, uh, you guys know, like I, I, I'm like the kind of a, a version of the Energizer Bunny or the Roadrunner or whatever. Like I go hard, I run fast, and whenever I lay my head on the pillow, I'm asleep in about three seconds. Okay, it doesn't take long. Ask my wife, right? We're at praying sometimes, ashamed to admit, talking sometimes, and I'm like, I'm nar- i I say, Markleptic, right? Like it just like quick. So, how many of you guys are like that? You're just, you're absolutely quick to fall asleep. Okay. So me, John Campbell, Caleb, a few others, all right. So I, I, I really want us to uh, examine this idea, but but do so in a little bit of a different form by asking you uh, this question. Next slide. When you say, I'm exhausted, what do you mean when you say that? Right, so so when you tell your friend or your spouse or when you send a text or when you even think in your mind, I'm I'm exhausted, I'm spent, I'm done. What do you mean when those words or that thought comes to mind? Okay. Exhaustion is a powerful thing. All of us at times feel very, very weary. And this concept and this question tonight will drive much of this unbelievable text. And this passage, unfortunately, I think for many of you is one that you would just like Scoot on by. There's a lot of death, there's a lot of carnage, there's a lot of repetition. And it's very, very easy just to get lost in it and say, okay, that's nice. Uh, There's a lot of similar things happening here. Not really much inference for us, so we move on by. Every week, I hope, one of the things that you take from studying God's Word is there is so much there. In passages, in particular, that you've written off. And so the Lord has been marinating my heart. I pray the Lord marinates our hearts together with his word. So let's pray for that now in boldness. God, please come use this text powerfully, even with the repetition, even with uh, the things that are happening in it, even with the death, even with the carnage. I pray that you draw us near to yourself right now in your name and for your glory. And all of God's people said, amen. This map is going to be our friend tonight, okay? This map is going to be utilized all evening long. This is what we're studying. The end of chapter 10 in Joshua, the southern campaign. Now, what happened last week, many of you guys will remember, next slide, is five kings formed an alliance and challenged the Israelite army in Gibeon. That did not go well for those kings. In fact, they were so cowardly, that these five kings ended up hiding together, we picture them holding hands, and singing kumbaya in a cave, only later to be executed by Joshua. And so after that happens, after the kings are executed, now what this uh, text transpires is how the army begins to take all of their cities. And so listen, again, I'm serious. Very, very easy just to pass on by this. Instead, I want you to open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 10, verse 29. We're going to finish the chapter in chapter 10, which means we only have about three years left in Joshua. Here we go. Let's start in verse 29 of Joshua chapter 10. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Macada to Libna and fought against Libna. Verse 30, and the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. And he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left none remaining in it. And he did it to its king just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Uh, So just uh, for perspective, here's our friend the map. Okay, this is Libna. Again, they've just left Makeda. You can see that just to the right. This is where we're at in the current standing. Now two times out of these six battles that we're going to see unfold tonight, the scripture says two times in a row that the Lord gave into the hand of Israel the army. And I just, I want to make sure you understand the imagery. When I think of something being into the hand, uh, I picture a gift being given. I picture a hand that's simply open. It's doing nothing else and someone puts, you know, like like your grandma did on Thanksgiving, right? Or like your friends have done, or like you see when you pass by a beggar, an open hand. So for something to be put into the hand of, and specifically be attributed to God, it means it is a gift from God, and ultimately nothing the nation of Israel has done. Now, they're fighting certainly, they're obeying certainly, But just as it was that God fought the battle of Jericho, God is still fighting for the nation of Israel. He's still fighting for Libna and He literally gifts this entire land to the nation of Israel. And so when the scripture says that it's put into the hand of Israel from God, I just want to make sure you all understand they do not deserve the gift. Their hand is open as a beggar and God is providing in ways unseen. Incredibly powerful. Then, Verse 31, check this out, the next battle. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish. And they laid siege to it and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into, that's right, the hand of Israel. And he captured it on the, what's the word there? The second day. This is the only fight out of these six that it takes two days. Which is super interesting to know. Like Lachish must have Put up a little bit more of a fight. Again, I sh- I've been sharing with you guys the last couple of weeks. It's so difficult for us to actually get into the story because it feels unreal, it feels like a myth, like a video game. But this is the nation of Israel going town by town and obliterating it because they are obeying God. If there was a movie, imagine this: if there was a movie that was made of this campaign. Could you imagine how intense it would be? The fighting gets done in one city, and then Joshua says, all right, everybody, it's time time to head to Libna. And so they, they pack up their weaponry and their shields, and they walk through the very mountainous, hilly terrain of the middle of Canaan and head to another city. Imagine watching this in 3D. Imagine the bloodshed. I don't think this movie could be made PG-13. There is a ton of death, a ton of carnage, and the Lord, verse 32 says, gave Lachish into the hand of Israel. And he captured it, that's right on the second day, and struck it with the edge of the sword, and look what the scripture says, and every person in it, there's no survivors here. And so they leave Libna, next slide, and on our new friend the map, there's Lachish. And so they're just traveling warriors right now. Now what starts to unfold and what I long for you to start to see is what's actually happening in this text. So as best you can, as we're reading through this, ask the Lord to show you some deep truths that are tucked away in this powerful passage. Verse 33 is somewhat comical to me. Then Haram, king of Geezer, that's right, Geezer, don't hear too many town names, Geezer, okay, came up to help Lakish. And Joshua struck him and his people until he had left none remaining. Now, uh, let me show you this on the map. There's Geezer. They come down to help Lachish. And my question is, why in the world would anyone at this point, after hearing what's happened, say, hey, let's run and lose, right? Like, no one's, listen, you guys remember the, the recess days, okay? Some of you remember this moment way too well. Do you remember like the first times that you were um, a part of a game where there were captains and they chose teams? Do you guys remember that? And some of you were picked, you know, like almost last or last. It's a pretty painful feeling, right? It's this like, I I don't, I'm not worth anything. Maybe I'm losing. Now, imagine if the teams were, all right, this captain is going to choose the first 10 players, right? And this captain is going to choose the second 10 instead of going back and forth, you get the first pick, right? Like all the best, and you get the last pick. That's kind of what it feels like the king's doing. Hey, I know you're going to lose, so we're going to march on down there, play our trumpets, and come lose with you. Like, why in the world would this king do this? We're not sure, but he does, right? He sends maybe a telegram. Hey, we're coming to die with you, and the scripture says they, they do. Joshua struck him and his people until he left literally none remaining. Verse 34 is impactful for me. You'll see the repetition. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon, and they laid siege to it, look at this, and fought against it. And they captured it on that day, not the second day, on that day, and struck it with the edge of the sword, and he devoted every person in it to destruction that day as he had done to Lachish. Now, one thing that when I got to this point in my study that I was profoundly impacted by, and I pray you as well, is no one is asking questions. There's no scriptural recording of someone raising their hand and saying, uh, like, can, can we, like, can we take a break here, right? Like, this has been a lot of fighting. Now listen to this. There is no commentator that I can find, and this is by my research as well, that would say that this lasted, this whole campaign this whole southern initiative, lasted longer than two months. I can't find anyone that would say that. My estimation puts it more at four to six weeks. So four to six weeks of battle after battle after battle, and we have no record of anyone saying, hey, uh, maybe can we just hang back here and like stay an extra night in our tent or something, right? Like, or can we grab some of the bounty here? And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well Mark, like maybe the scripture just doesn't record it. I'm going to actually challenge that thought process by saying I believe so far scripture has recorded the disobedience in Joshua quite clearly. You guys understand? Like a moment when someone doesn't trust. A moment when someone takes something. You guys remember that whole story in AI? Like a moment when there's some, a challenge. Uh, clearly there's some scriptural evidence to it. And so here, all we see is, then Joshua and the nation of Israel. Then Joshua and the nation of Israel. Then Joshua and the nation of Israel. No one asking questions. My question is, why? Is it victory that's driving them? Again, do you understand how intense this is? Most of us would not sign up for this if we could choose. Uh, So, hey, here's the deal. Um, We're going to go and conquer six different kings and their people and we're going to kill everyone. Who's in? If we were to do that tonight, like I'm not so sure that many of you would be like, oh yeah, that, would, that sounds amazing. And yet here this entire nation finds itself in this place of carrying out the judgment of God. No one is asking questions. And so, just like the others before it, Eglon goes down as well. Verse 36, Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up to Eglon, to, he- uh, to Hebron, and look, they fought against it, verse 37. Then they captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword. And its king, with its town, so there's multiple towns, and every person in it. He left none remaining as he had done in Eglon and devoted to destruction every person in it. Here's the continued path, right? Eglon is a very key city in its proximity, and so now they're uh, moving uh, onward. Death after death, tens of thousands of them fight after fight. And verse 38, check this out. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Debir and fought against it. And he captured it with its king and all its towns. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining just as he had done to Hebron and to Libna and its king. As so he did to Debir and to its king. Now, this isn't on the top ten list of Bible study passages. You know what I'm saying? Uh, my guess is you've never seen the bumper sticker that says, you know, Joshua chapter 10, verse 29 to four. Right? Like, you're not seeing that. Okay? My, my guess is you guys aren't, you're, like, the devotionals that come to your email aren't highlighting this passage. In fact, if you do a research on the internet, that's right, on Google, on even how many sermons have been preached on this passage, very, very, very few. Okay. Well, the question is why? First of all, Joshua hasn't been preached much, which is confusing to me, because to me it's been beautiful and fruitful. It's very, very difficult to discuss and teach heavy moments in the Scripture like this. So look at this pathway to destruction. From Gibeon and the five kings, executing those five kings after they came out of a cave, and all the way down to beard. And so I look at all of these collections of things, and I just want to, with you, make three very poignant observations, okay? Next slide. The first observation from the southern campaign is there is deep unity in the Israelites, deep unity. No one seems to be asking questions. Everyone is moving together. We've been sharing that over and over and over here in recent months in this body. There is something so powerful about a group of people united in mission and pursuing it together. A certain trust of what God would be doing, of how God could use us, of what could happen if we all trusted together. Again, I believe we would see disobedience recorded if it was there. I believe we would see the soldiers that hung back in fear if it was there. It must not be going on. This nation must be unified. And again, the question is why? I believe they have seen so much of the power of God together and they have now started to believe God's word together that the power of God and the power of God's word is on a massive collision course with his people. And this is our story the power of God and God's word in a massive collision course with our heart and something then powerfully can happen when people unite around that. But more heavy, number two, sin is more devastating than we can comprehend. There have been sins that you have committed that have hurt you and others a tremendous amount but I want to propose to you that you don't even know the half of it. This past weekend at the marriage retreat, uh, so blessed by my wife Heidi sharing with all of the couples how a sin of mine impacted her and hurt her. And I was standing off to her side and in that moment again reminded that I have no comprehension of how deep my sin impacts my wife, let alone anyone else. Sin is way more devastating than any of you can even imagine. And we can imagine a lot about it. We've been hurt by it. We've hurt others by it. We've seen the drastic effects of it. As much as we can comprehend in our feeble minds, I'm just proposing to you, that's not even the half of it. And some of you are like, well, well like, Mark, then, then how does that relate to this text? God is purifying his people's land by judging those who are denying him. Innocent people are not being slain in these cities. People that are worshiping pagan gods, people that are going their own way, communities that are following falsehood. That is who is being judged. God is purifying his land for his people and the devastation of sin Listen, we've only just begun to see it. The third observation I want to make so far about the southern campaign is the Israelite army shows no signs of being battle-worn. Now... I've shared with you guys before, I absolutely love war movies, I love war the depictions, there's something about it that is unbelievable. I got super obsessed with World War II for a, a good season of time, I wanted to talk to every World War II soldier I could, my grandfather was a World War II soldier. How many uh, other rest of you have grandfathers or someone, aunts, uncles that fought in some war or served in some way? Several of us, right? So uh, there's a certain uh, impact of talking to those people. And one of the things that just about every war movie depicts is some moment when the army gets battle-worn. One of my favorite depictions is a series called The Band of Brothers. And there's a a very, very intense moment where some of these soldiers who become very good friends are sitting in a trench that has been frozen over. And their feet are getting gangrene because they can't can't come out of the trench because they're going to get hit by the enemy. And they sit there and the looks on their faces, they are done, they're over, way beyond the point of exhaustion. They're not eating, they're not sleeping, they're not clean. But I see no signs in the nation of Israel of being battle-worn. And yet, do you understand what they've just fought? Again, just so we're all, under, like that whole map, they're not showing up and the people are just like, kill me please. Every single time, it says, and They fought. There is fighting going on in every one of these cities, sometimes multiple cities in an area. And so these soldiers are walking through mountainous terrain, city after city, in a short period of time. And we have zero indication that they're battle-worn or that they're becoming reluctant or that they're becoming too exhausted to fight. Does anyone else see that with me? Again, like, it's so easy just to, like, look past this passage and say, that's a lot of carnage, let's move to James chapter 1, that's a little bit easier, right? Like, it's easy for us to do that. But when you sit back in this, you're like, why doesn't the Scripture talk about the fact that this soldier has just fought six battles in six weeks and walked through the mountains? It doesn't mention it. It's as if these soldiers are not battle-worn at all. Which now all of a sudden we're starting to get somewhere, aren't we? Before we dive more into that, let's finish this text. Look at how the text ends in summary. So Joshua, verse 40, struck the whole land, the hill country and the Nageb, the low land and the slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining but devoted to destruction, all that what's the word? All that breathe, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. As one reminder, Joshua here isn't acting uh, under some coup d'etat. He's simply following orders. God has commanded, Joshua is listening. This is a beautiful relationship. It seems harsh. But when a man or woman of God find themselves just saying, God, whatever you want. I'm not going to ask questions in this moment. Lord, you point the finger and I will go. You tell me where and and say when and I will follow you. That's the image that we have here of Joshua. Verse 41. And Joshua struck them from the Kadesh Barnea, as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen. As far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel, hello somebody. What's that? Come on. Thought. You see, now we're starting to get somewhere, right? These soldiers aren't battle worn. And now we're starting to get a little bit of a glimpse of why. Because they show up in Eglon, and who's fighting for them? That's right, it's the Lord. Uh, They show up in Lachish, and guess what? Guess who's fighting for them then, too? That's right, it's the Lord. Are are they using their hands and their swords? Sure. As far as they can see, it's their fights. But as far as the reality, it's the Lord's. This is what we shared with you a couple of weeks ago. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. And there is not one day that all of us aren't in a raging battle. We're in a battle first against the old man for those of us in Christ. The flesh trying to lure us back in. We're simultaneously in a battle against a very formidable enemy. He's going to be conquered one day, but for now, he's the ruler of the kingdom of the air, Ephesians says. Satan. And again, I know some of you are like, oh, this is the one night I was hoping we are going to talk about Satan. Listen, he is a very real enemy. So this is the war that we're in. And Joshua here is under the fighting nature of God for his people. This has not changed or stopped. God is still fighting for his people. And ultimately, it didn't continue in conquest in so many ways, though there are more towns to be won, and we'll watch that happen for us. God continued to fight for us as He sent His Son. His Son then murdered. His Son's blood then means something. God hasn't stopped fighting for His people. And finally in verse 43, Then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal, so after all of this battle, I think we have one more map. Next slide, if we have it up there. I'm not sure if we do. Yeah, there it is. So there's Gilgal. So look at, look at their journey. First of all, I wouldn't sign up for this just to walk it, okay? Right? If someone was like, hey, you want to go on a, you know, on a six-week journey? We're just going to walk around. I would look at that and say, no, no thank you, okay? Don't like hiking. You know, I really don't enjoy walking that much. I certainly don't enjoy running, right? And if there's no holiday inns on this, I'm out, okay? So imagine like looking at this map, if if you were like in the war room and then you were told what the mission was going to be. So this now allows us to wrestle with some very, very deep things. I can't make all of you come there with me right now, but I'm praying and longing that you would. Next slide. it is unbelievably tough to die to ourself every day. The commands from Jesus to daily take up our cross and follow Him is not one of ease. It's so much easier to wake up every day and live for yourself, pursuing your own interests, Building your own kingdoms? Here's what I'm asking Are you battle worn from the fight? Are you exhausted? And maybe you haven't even come to the point where you've been ready to admit it? Are you exhausted because of what's been happening internally? You are in right now this season or situation. Where temptation is so strong. And you're watching yourself indulge and give in. While at the same time, the new man that you are in Christ, the scripture says, the Holy Spirit in you is leading and directing you away from that. And you're like caught in that tension, temptation, so strong right now. And because of that daily battle, some of you are so exhausted, so worn out, so battle-worn. Others of you, it's because of a trial that you're going through right now, not temptation, just this situation. You would call it circumstance, I would call it sovereignty. Where all of a sudden you find yourself unable to answer your own questions and wondering, God, why am I here? Are you battle worn? We've mentioned this several times. We're guaranteed victory in Christ. We, we know this. The enemy's going to lose. Sin has been conquered. Death has been conquered. Death will be no more. We'll be able to say to death, where is your sting? So if we have guaranteed victory, then why are we so battle-worn, my friends? Next slide. So I want to look at several signs that could help you understand if in fact you're so exhausted, so worn to the point that maybe you stopped fighting. And some of you are like, but Mark, you just said that God is fighting for us 100%. But who was walking? Who was walking? The Israelites. Who had the sword in their hand? The Israelites. They were still present. They're still fighting. Some of you have laid the swords down because of being exhausted. Some signs of being battle-worn, right? One discouragement all of a sudden feels like 10,000. Uh, I'll, just, I'll just bring you in. Um shared this a lot at the Marriage Tree. <clears throat> Pastoring and being in full-time vocational ministry in general is very, very difficult. All of your vocations are very difficult in their unique way. So I'm not saying that pastoring is more difficult. But I'm saying that there are times where, because of the um, overwhelming expectations or critique or the feelings of failure, when in my own mind and heart, though it's not real at all, something happens that I will take as a potential discouragement and there have been seasons where it has instantly pushed me like 25 feet under the ground. There's been other times, like 55 discouragements in one day, like no big deal. The joy of the Lord is my strength. I fight against it with Scripture. But then there's other days where I I really feel like I'd rather just lay down. I don't want to do this one more day. Does anyone else relate a little bit? You know you're battle-worn when one discouragement feels like a whole lot more. Next slide. Some signs of being battle-worn. This is huge. Uh, You see, when you are fully present in the battle, every single day is way more than just an opportunity. It's a day you get to fight in the Lord, full armor of God on sword in hand and you take it all in like you're experiencing it your presence you're rejoicing you're walking in it when the days start to run together when the months somebody in this room when the years and all of a sudden as as I've said many times here life is living you and you're not living life that is a massive sign of being battle worn tired, exhausted, done You don't even know what today is. I mean, it's just one more day of clocking in and clocking out of life. And you feel like you're just on, I'm like, you feel like, have you guys seen Groundhog Day? You're just going to wake up and live the same day again tomorrow. When the days run together, that is a massive sign of being battle-worn, and some of you are right there right now. Next slide, some signs of being battle-worn. Hello, hello. Now, this gets taken out mostly in your friendships when grace decreases and anger increases. This happens a ton in your marriage when you begin to get battle-worn, that same opportunity that you certainly would have extended grace. Silly stuff, right? Hey, honey, where'd you put my toothbrush? Oh, you know, I just, I put it back in the drawer. What? You put my, my toothbrush where? We've talked about this over and over. It goes in my bag, right? Like right in my bag next to my deodorant, Right? And then, like, your spouse walks away. This has never happened. Then your spouse walks away. You're like, what in the world was that? Battle-worn, anger increasing. We could could say it this way, you're edgy. Now, all this is going to a very, very um, poignant moment for us. And so I know some of you are like, well, why would I even want to know if I'm battle-worn? I'm going to show you why. And so as you're sitting back right now, if this is where you're at, prone to anger, I would say it is a massive indicator. Why? Because the grace that we extend to others is a massive testimony to how we're receiving God's grace ourselves. Number four, this one's tough. Some signs of being battle-worn. Obedience is complete drudgery. There's zero joy in it. You've lost all joy in obeying and following God. Uh, Some of you, you you, you know you're supposed to, and so you just keep doing it because you're supposed to, and ultimately you don't want to be judged by God, and you've convinced yourself that with enough good works that in the end it's going to work out. And I know that may sound a little bit harsh to some of you, but this is the majority of American Christianity. I've shared with you before, I believe that the percentage of American Christianity that is actually dying to themselves and following Christ is very small. So please don't look to American Christianity and let them define for you what it means to follow Christ. Let the scripture show you that. And in the scripture, obeying God is a gift because these commands from him are presents. And again, if you've been here for more than two months, you know we say all the time here, obeying God is like Christmas morning all of the time. God, what do you have for us today? And when we open those gifts, and when we follow Him and obey Him, there is so much joy in it. But when it becomes drudgery, when it becomes supposed to's, when it becomes should's, when it becomes I better so that someone doesn't see me disobey, when it becomes about public portrayal, a massive indicator of being battle worn. I'm done. It's over. You're just going through the motions. Or can I propose to you that is it possible that when you get enough people going through the motions together, you're convinced that you're not going through the motions at all? I shared this with our covenant members on Monday. I want to get to a place where this body hates sin, hates sin. Not in an unhealthy place where we then hate people. Or not in an unhealthy place where we look past sin. I want to get to a place where together we hate sin so much that we are unafraid in love to care for our brothers and sisters in this body enough to call them to task. Why? Because we long for them to open the presence that God has. And so when they're not when we're watching them battle-worn and exhausted and just going through the motions. We, we know they have so much more for them in Christ and we cannot wait to share that with them. I'm just saying, is it possible that when a group of people, a family, a group of friends are all going through the motions together, then it just becomes okay. Let's just put on the mask together. It's all good. No. The next sign of being battle-worn you can't get self pity out of your mind your needs are worse than everyone else's your wounds are worse than everyone else's you've been through far too much you guys know the damning reality of self pity is it just encloses you in yourself which is anti gospel that has provided a way out of yourself are we together Self-pity by nature is, I'm going to feel sorry for myself. And so you close up. But the whole message that Jesus came to share is, I have a way that you can get out of yourself. You don't have to live enclosed anymore. You can be fully freed by the power of my shed blood. So come and receive that. But self-pity, when we're battle-worn, it just compounds and compounds and compounds. And again, just in a moment of vulnerability, it is so easy when the days get tough just to think to yourself that um, I've got it worse off than anyone Uh, there was something that happened recently that um, was discouraging to me even though it wasn't intended to be personal I took it personal and in my sin you know what I did I in my mind berated that person because this is what self pity does Well, I bet they just did that because X, Y, Z. Justifying it. I'm sure that, you know, Well, if they really knew what I was going through, like maybe then they would shape their perspective. Like five of these things coming out in one moment. You know what I'm saying? Grace not being extended. Anger rising. Self-pity dominates your thinking. Number six, some signs of being battle-worn. Anything to provide an escape. I asked you at the very, very beginning, so when you get exhausted, what does that mean to you? And when you get exhausted, my next question is, what do you do? Some of you have go-tos, right? When you get tired, worn out, uh, Netflix binge, okay? Uh, when you get tired and worn out, eat everything in sight. When you get tired and worn out, I want to take 16 naps. And, you know, when you get tired and worn out, it's video games for days. Like, well, like you, you all have a go-to. And when you start to understand the premise of the go-to, I would say for me it's food. When I get tired and worn out, food is a great escape. It feels good going down. When you stop and, th- and think about what's happening in the pursuit of the escape... Think about everything that you're believing in that moment. But it is a massive sign of being battle worn. And finally, some signs of being battle worn a calloused approach to the gospel. Five, six days ago, just hearing the name of Jesus made you weep in joy. I mean, someone could just mention the scripture from Colossians chapter 1 about the supremacy of Christ. And you would just like, your heart would just burst out of your chest. Someone would share a testimony to you about how God was working in their life. And you would like, Don Brown bear hug them, right? I mean, you would just go after them and squeeze them tight and celebrate with them. As you get battle-worn, even tonight, one of your indicators of being battle-worn is you've already heard the gospel like 17 times. And some of you, whatever. Another night of hearing Jesus. Another night of coming to Matthias and hearing about Jesus. And if you don't know anything about uh, Matthias, let me go ahead and ruin the surprise. That's all this church is about. See, so if you're waiting for the surprise ending, it's not going to happen ever, ever. But you know, when you're battle-worn, not sensitive at all to the power of the gospel. Now, why does this matter? Why is it an indicator and why is it huge for us to understand if we are battle-worn? Let me show you next slide. First, in this passage in Galatians 6. And let us not grow what? Come on. Weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So now we don't just have this like, hey, you know, some attaboys. Now we have a command in Scripture, do not grow weary in doing, uh, in doing what's good. And you guys know it is so insanely easy to grow weary in doing what is good. And so then, all of a sudden, we find ourselves getting weary and worn and then uh, pursuing all the escapism things that we just talked about. The command of the Scripture. This is why this matters. It's not just there, though. Next slide. Look at this. In Second Thessalonians chapter 3, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Get ready for battle. Don't be battle-worn. Now, when I hear don't be battle-worn, when I read these passages, all I think about in my mind is, okay, so I have, so, like, I, I guess I, I, guess we just need to work harder. All right, everyone, here's what we're going to do as a church. We're going we're gonna to go out tomorrow, we're going to get tattoos, matching tattoos, all of us, okay? It's going to be a great day for the tattoo parlor, all of us, we're just going to line up, Okay. And wherever you want it, right, on your wrist, on your shoulder blade, lower back, forehead, whatever, wherever you want that tat, okay, we're just going to put on it, do not grow weary. And then every day, if we say that enough, hey, don't grow, do not grow weary, do not grow weary, then we're just going to figure it out. I'm so thankful that the scripture never, ever, ever shoots out commands and says, just go for it and hope for the best. Let me show you what I mean. Next slide. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. In other words, listen, you don't have to pull up your bootstraps. Consider Christ. This is the clearest, one of the clearest equations in Scripture. You want the secrets to not growing weary or being faint-hearted? You consider Christ. You imagine the mockery that he took. You remember for a second the jabs in his side as the blood flowed. You put yourself in the scourgings as the flesh on his back was being ripped open. You listened to the things that he was being called all the while completely innocent and getting ready to die for the same mockers who killed him. You consider that. And then in that moment of considering Jesus, in that moment of being overwhelmed again of what Christ has done, then there is a natural through the Holy Spirit inside of you result of he is king. And I believe what was happening in the nation of Israel the reason why we don't see their questions the reason why they don't seem battle worn it's not just because God is fighting for them, it's because they've realized he really is king and if he's king and if he's going to fight for them then what in the world do they have to lose, which is precisely what scripture says if he is for you, who can be against you and so there's no need then to be battle worn or weary or tired or get faint hearted. Why? Because he's king and he is fighting for his people and that will never change. And so let us then consider Christ. But some of you, unbelievably tired, unbelievably weary unbelievably hurt, you don't even feel like you have the energy or the wherewithal to even look towards the light. And so for all those of you who find yourselves there, all the feelings, all of the weightiness, all of the weariness. I fully believe in the power of Christ that tonight He, all of a sudden for some of you again, can become in your heart and mind what He wasn't for you when you walked in here. So, the reason I believe that, the reason I believe that is because of what He's done. Please hear me, my friends, my brothers and sisters. He did not ransom you. He didn't pay the price. He didn't save you or redeem you to leave you weary on the street. He didn't pull you out of the pit of darkness to put you back there. He pulled you out of the pit so that you could live in victory, so that you could experience hope. So that tonight, even in the face of what feels like overwhelming odds, that there's no way you could ever find that zeal and passion for Christ again. There's no way you couldn't be a battle worn again. I'm telling you, He is fighting for you, and He is King. And so together, in a responsive reading, I want to share in the power of what the broken body and shed blood of Christ means. I'm going to read the leader portion and all of us together, let's share in the hope of the all portion. The body of Christ is broken for us that we may come to Him and find rest. Lord, Guide us to consider what you endure and give us hope as we come to the table. The blood of Christ is shed for us that we may be sent in Him to tell the world about His love and the forgiveness of sins. And altogether, Lord, guide us to consider what you poured out. And give us hope as we come to the table. And in a resounding voice in unity together. Lord, though weary, we come to You. Lord, though troubled, we come to You. Lord, though doubting, we come to You. Lord, as we come to the altar, transform our weariness into an unwavering hope in You And you alone. And the church said. And the church said. This isn't a table of condemnation. We don't come here as defeated. We come here, maybe yes, in our weariness, but with hope. So Lord, as we come, transform our weariness into an everlasting hope that you fought for us and that you're king. Come to the table, my friends, all who believe.